on Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine. There's a war being waged on our individual and collective coherence. This is an opportunity to stop, breathe, think, consider. Rise to the occasion of being conscious actors, responsible for one another and every other living thing. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, founder of Brazilian activist network Media Ninja, Driaje Aguiar. There's no way we can make history without make culture. That's impossible. Like, when I would say make history, I'm not talking about revolutionating things, changing things. No, I'm talking about living your life. Driaje will be telling us how and why to center the voices of those who are experiencing reality on the ground. It's time to intervene on behalf of real people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I mean, this past week was really weird. I mean, I guess it, it, it climaxed in the Republican National Convention with these weird costume choices by Melania Trump, the, Donald Trump's wife. The first dress she wore when she showed up there and gave this talk, it was this military green dress in the same style, certainly from the waist up, with the epaulets and the pockets and the neckline as Adolf Hitler's Nuremberg outfit. And it was so over the top that I couldn't believe she meant it straight. You know, there was this whole evening of authoritarian rhetoric Everyone who came up that night was saying, you know, your streets are not safe, that the Democrats are opening the borders and defunding the police, and they're moving criminals into your neighborhood, and they want to take away your guns. The not-so-subtle message of that night of the Republican National Convention was be afraid of black people who are going to come and hurt you, get guns, vote for Trump, and we'll protect you from this. And to have a night of all that, and then the wife of the president gets up to do her speech, and she's wearing a military outfit. I thought, is this for real? Or is there something else going on here? I mean, this is where I run into problems sometimes. I, I assume that people are smart, I guess, that that something else is happening. And I thought, maybe she's signaling us, right? That's the sign of a truly schizophrenic person, right? You look at TV and think they're talking to you. <laughs> but I thought, maybe she's signaling us. Because she, she was reading so flat from the teleprompter. And every time they cut to Trump, it looked like he was so dissatisfied with the with her performance. I thought, Maybe Melania is just not playing this game. That maybe she's using her accent or her, her lack of English to pretend that she's incapable of showing emotion or enthusiasm for the speech she's making. And that Trump, he knows her. He knows she could sell this stuff if she really wanted to. But instead, she's just reading the scripts as flat as she can. And that's why he looks so mad. And then when he gets up on the stage, he tries to kiss her on the lips. He puts his lips in this big pucker, and she avoids it once, and he shows her that he's got the pucker, and then she avoids it again. And I'm thinking, oh, man, she's not really being a, a Nazi authoritarian. She's putting on this outfit, 
as if to warn us. Look, these people are authoritarian. Look what's happening to your country. I'm going to show you what's happening. And then the next night, <laughs> she uh, wears a chroma key green colored dress. It's the color that's used in a, in a, a background, like if you're going to uh, uh, shoot, you know, G Game of Thrones or Star Wars, and you put the actors in front of this green screen because then that, that color isn't used anywhere in nature. You don't see it anywhere, and it would help then you could put, you know, a building or a space or whatever behind those people. You can set them in some giant, you know, uh, other environment. And I'm thinking, wow, what's that? And when I saw that, I realized, oh, this is a, this is actually a weird kind of semiotic postmodern conversation that she's wearing this green which is saying you can project onto me anything you want i'm a ready-made meme even you can take my image and throw it on twitter throw it on instagram put whatever you want make this dress look like whatever it is and unfortunately i can't give i can't give her the credit that she's winking to us because she's part of this thing, and there's a, a book that just you know, it's come out, a kind of biography of her by by one of her people who work with her, and she's uh, she's part of this, you know. She's not as much as I'd like to believe, like a, a free Winona or or free uh, free Britney, you know, <laughs> being kept prisoner. Unfortunately, it's not it's not that that uh, complex. No, she's she's in this. She's playing the same postmodern game that everybody else is playing. That what we're really looking at here is how the left and right have both untethered themselves from the real, but in different ways. It's what used to be called postmodernism, or that cheeky kind of 1960s Operation Mind. The thing that Abby Hoffman and Robert Anton Wilson and those activists as kind of post-Dada situationist thinking 1968 Paris artists were thinking. But it's being applied to the real world and in weird and dangerous ways. And it occurred to me that what's happening here is really a symptom of our inability to deal with cybernetics. Cybernetics is, in some ways, it's another way of saying digital, but not just digital the way we think about, oh, Google and Facebook and surveillance and whatever. It's cybernetics is the, the, the feedback loops of our digital world, that everything is a cycle. Cybernetics was Norbert Wiener's term. The, he was one of the first uh, roboticists. And cybernetics is the way that a robot can sense its environment, that it can get feedback from the world and then change what it does based on what's happened out there, right? It's this loop. It's this interactivity. And when you have feedback loops, rather than simple command and control, rather than simple top-down orders, when you have feedback from the bottom back to the top and back from the top back to the bottom, when there's a call and a response and the response is the call and the call is the response, cause and effect are no longer distinct. We don't know who is doing what to whom or 
depending on our perspective, we think that this one is acting on that one when it's actually this one acting on that one and that one reacting to this one. So when you don't have clear cause and effect, it becomes tricky to know are black protests a response to white abuse or is white fear a response to black protests or both? If you want to run a world that's that's stuck in all these feedback loops, you want to just create as much chaos as possible so people can no longer distinguish cause and effect. Or so half the people think that was the cause and we're the effect, and the other half think, oh no, they're the cause and we're the effect. So you get a crazy 17-year-old in the streets with a rifle, and it's hard to say whether he is a victim, like a victim of QAnon and Trump, or is he a terrorist, or is he both? The right wing, we know that the right or the alt-right has given up on fact-based reality in favor of reality TV and performance. Melania's military dress is symbolism, is straight old symbolism, where her green screen dress is a pure postmodern invitation for meme creation. Trump himself, he does game show techniques. He's doing game show awards of pardons. That's the way he's using the pardon. He stages a game show gift, and he goes so far as to tell the recipient while they're on TV together to pretend that he's finding out about this in the moment. Trump said, I'm going to grant you I don't think you know this yet, a full pardon. And when he said, I don't think you know this yet, he was saying it like an aside to the guy, like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I don't think you know this yet, a full pardon. Instructing him, directing him like the producer of a reality show. Hey, dude, act like you don't know this yet. And the scariest thing about it is that he says that on TV. It's not like he tells them 10 minutes before they go on, look, I want you to pretend, right? Like you're just finding this out for the first time when I tell you, okay? No, it's in front of us all. He's doing that. He's giving the cue for the guy to pretend and act like he's just finding out in front of the full audience. So it's not that people are pretending that things are happening in front of the audience. It's that People are demonstrating their ability to act like that. Pardoning the guy, meanwhile, it demonstrates how Trump deals with race, right? We pardon the blacks for all their crimes, and then they thank us. And he seems okay with us seeing that this is what's happening. He's saying, I can break the rules. I can turn this into a performance. And my people know it's a performance and still go along with it. And I can show you that it's a performance or that I'm breaking the rules. And there's nothing you can do about it. Because I'm here and you're not. This is my White House, not yours. That is power. So it's, it's a demonstration of using reality TV as reality creation. This is the TV show. But the left, sadly, the left is at least partly responsible for this mode of reality creation. Having succumbed over a decade ago to postmodernism and critical theory in its highly academic kind of fact-free version of identity politics. 
There were really smart people in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, in, in France in particular, developing postmodern theory of Baudrillard and Barthes. And it was really interesting to look at our uh, look at language and art and imagery this way. You could deconstruct the cover of Time magazine or or Life. You know, you could say, "Oh, look, there's the world. There's the things we use to represent the world, and then those representations can replace our perception and our experience." That was interesting stuff, and it gave a cheeky leftist activists the ability to uh, destabilize uh, the the locked down perspective on reality that was being created by you know corporations or the military industrial complex. So you got these 1960s satirists like Paul Krasner and Abby Hoffman and and even you know Lenny Bruce who were really involved in in the the broader effort of Operation Mind which was meant to put in some wiggle room to give the underclasses and the oppressed some ability to reinterpret what was going on and to shake the overclasses' faith in what they thought was real. But once destabilized, once we shook things loose, we kind of became untethered ourselves. Postmodernism was really for artists. It's like an optical illusion. Just because an optical illusion might work on you doesn't mean that everything else you're seeing is not real. It doesn't make the fights on Jerry Springer or the romances on The Bachelor any more real. At least not until those fake performances bleed back into the real lives of the people playing those roles. That's cybernetics. That's the feedback. So critical theory came along and in a well-meaning way tried applying this artist's version of postmodernism to the experiences of the oppressed. But that's really tricky because Marx or Gandhi or Martin Luther King, they, their work was all based in on-the-ground reality, usually something like, like class, money, jobs, lynchings. These were objective conditions. Postmodernism, it's more about perception. Everything is perception. You know, the, uh, this is not a pipe. It, it's, it's trippy as we come to recognize how much of our reality is our perception of it. It's very LSD, very television, very Freud. It's about projection. And it's what led us to what we now call identity politics or intersectionalism. How you see me and how I see you is all there is. So whoever dominates the image dominates reality. You know, as a, as a Jewish man, I see it this way. As a black man, I see it this way. As a queer woman, I see it this way. And whatever I say has to be right because I'm claiming the perception of my intersection. And that can't be wrong. You can't know how I see the world better than I can. But now, the alt-right has learned to do this. And they've learned to do it pretty cynically, right? As white men, we see things this way. We, the white minority, and it is a minority, we feel we are being perceived as this. So we're really looking at now, we're looking at uh, mutations uh, of Occupy on the left 
and the Tea Party on the right, only now fully divorced from conditions on the ground or class consciousness. Occupy Wall Street, you know, it may have been abstract in certain ways, but it was it was embodied, it was on the ground, and it was talking about Wall Street. It was talking about the corporate extraction of wealth from the real world. The Tea Party, for all their problems, they were still looking at the budget. They had their issues. They thought government was too big and we gotta we gotta rein it in and the money's not being distributed right. They had an on-the-ground agenda. But once Occupy becomes this uh, postmodernism and the Tea Party becomes the alt-right, it's all relativism. As an X, I see it this way. As a Y, I see it this way. And that critical theory practice has screwed up everything else, right? As a MAGA, I see things this way. As a QAnon, I see them that way. But there's an actual way things are, which gets thrown out. We concede reality itself to the debate. No one has any ground for discussion or engagement. And this is largely social media's fault, in that we accept our algorithmically derived profiles as some measure of who we are. Our identities are defined by what comes to us in our social media feeds. It's a programmer's view of personhood where we perceive and behave true to our character sheet or our initial programming. So I guess I'm saying I think I really see what's going on here. This is kind of a, 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 a Rushkoff's view of this is what is happening. I really think I'm getting the, the, the big picture. I, I started to understand it back around 2013 when I wrote Present Shock. I saw that, that na- narrativity was collapsing, that we were in a state of what I was calling digifrenia with these, these, these multiple kind of personalities being defined by different uh, social media algorithms and how that led to this state of fractal noia where we're trying to connect the dots out there in the internet and how that ultimately leads to apocalypto, this this end-of-the-worldness, that if we can't recreate a satisfying narrative, we would rather the story just end. And now, what I was writing about in Present Shock is kind of a, a psychic landscape, an atmosphere. Now we're in it for real. It's an untethering that happens when time loses direction and narratives collapse and postmodern ontological relativism ends up just taking over the humanities and everything else. But it's the wrong tool for the job. We end up in a world where the right can stage a camp authoritarian convention, complete with a green chroma key costume comment on audience projection built from mimetic interaction. And they can do it in front of us, laughing the whole time as it works. If anything, it's the right that's now capable of doing that Abby Hoffman-like winking to the audience, breaking rules about staging events at the White House as a form of performative communication. They weren't supposed to. It's not legal to use the White House that way. And they do it, and Trump from the podium says, we're here, and they're not. Get it? And the left, the left is trapped in its own linguistic prison. 
if anything you say or do can be interpreted by anyone to mean anything, then you can't say or do anything without wounding somebody. I know the things I've already said in this little, little monologue have already triggered people, and that's a shame. But in some cases, triggering is just your nervous system has to respond to what I'm saying, and sometimes it's going to be shocked. Doesn't matter how I mean it, right? And not in postmodernism, it's just how you get it. But no, 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 how I mean it is real. And both sides here are simply playing out politics in this fully postmodern cybernetic era. It's those feedback loops, the loss of command and control, cause and effect that we still haven't dealt with. It's just like that feedback when you point the microphone at the speaker and it goes screech, right? Climate change, dehumanized technology, and, and society untethered from any governing factors, all of these things are based in feedback loops. Feedback loops. Your, your climate change happens because, oh no, the world's getting hotter, so we get more air conditioners and make the world hotter, Dehumanized tech makes us see people as less than human, and we treat them worse, which then makes the technologies more dehumanized. It's a purely bad trip. That's the negative feedback loop. And I think the answer is simply to get real. Everyone is going crazy. Yes, one side is violent, while the other side is historically and institutionally oppressed, but they're in a feedback loop that's leading to worse of both. But when I, when I pull back and I look at what's going on here, I see a whole bunch of poor disempowered people of every color being programmed by social media to fight against one another instead of against their mutual oppressors. And sure, they can each see how the other side is being manipulated, but they can't see how they themselves are being radicalized the same way. I fear we are on the verge of something very much like a civil war. People are actually already shooting each other in the streets based on crazy-ass fake and giving more ammunition to a president and media that feed and thrive off this artificial and unnecessary conflict. Chaos and violence works in their favor. That's what the president actually said. Because then cops get more nervous, they shoot more black people who then protest, who then bring out the Trumpies and more chaos and violence. These are feedback loops and there's a way to just stop them. Simply pull the microphone away from the speaker or the speaker away from the microphone. That means either not looking, no more doom scrolling, or looking in a different way. Not poised to tweet and retweet, but to pull back and understand. You're on Team Human. I'm delighted to introduce Drea J. Aguiar, co-founder and editor of Media Ninja, an activist media collective in Brazil, giving oppressed and indigenous people the chance to tell their stories, organize through media, and save themselves and their environment, and maybe saving the rest of us in the process. I was introduced to Drea J. by climate activist Alnor Lada, who we've had on this show, and Felipe Viveros, the Latinx activist and writer behind Culture Hack Labs, who I'll be speaking with later this fall. With people as smart and soulful as this working on all our behalf, I feel a little less hopeless about our collective fate. 
and particularly about the future for the global majority of oppressed peoples. Let's let's start with the, uh, I guess, the story of Media Ninja. I guess, what were the conditions that gave rise to you wanting to do this? Uh, Media Ninja was found by another network that is called OffX. Uh, when we got into big cities like Sao Paulo, and we decided to make a space here. And when we did make, make a space and we have our events, our parties, our meetings and the city, we, we start to get in touch with major movements, social movements. And then we, we start to tell all these other histories. And then we realized that we needed a media to do it, not only like take pictures or, or make videos or make a podcast. All of this was good, but we need an organization to tell the story in a different way. Especially when you are in Sao Paulo, you get in touch with a lot of mainstream media and that are not, this is not, this is very violent against all this, these people, right? Yeah, and that's how it's born uh, Media Ninja in 2012, at the end of 2012, December. And then uh, after that, things just blew up. And then we came from 30,000 followers to 1 million in two years. And then that's how we were able to tell more stories about others. So you sort of made the transition from being a, a cultural center to being a, an activist media network. So until these days, we do parties, we do events, we do festivals, and we actually believe a lot on the carnivalization of the politics. Like we should be able to enjoy ourselves. We should be able to produce art. We should be able to uh, open up about how culture works because we don't believe that it's possible to revolutionize anything without changing the culture. You know, it's encouraging for me to hear because a lot of times the... Um sort of more hardcore political activists will look at the cultural product and say, well, that's nice and all, but you're just all entertaining yourselves when we're in the streets doing the hard work. You know, there's a, there's a, a I remember, uh, I used to know Timothy Leary back in the day. He was a, a psychedelics activist and he said he, he hated hanging around with Marxists because they're so serious all the time. <laughs> but at the same time, I like this idea that culture is not a luxury, that we're not just making oh God, entertainment. No, you no. Know? there's no way we can make history without make culture. That's impossible. Like when I would say make history, I'm not talking about revolutionizing things, changing things. No, I'm talking about living your life. Everything that we do are artistic in a way. We make a culture for everything we do. The way we, we cook our food, the way that we talk to each other, our accent, uh, the clothes that we are, we are everything is culture. Everything is, even, even though you think, uh, we might think that's, I don't know, luxury or something uh, frivolous or something like that. Culture is pretty much the way that we communicate ourselves. So there's no way that any revolution could be done without culture. You can't fight culture. Culture will build yourself itself by our own beliefs. On the other side, you can't criminalize entertainment. You can't criminalize having fun. Because is this fun place? Is this entertainment place that actually builds our sense of self? That That's the, the, the craziest part. Like, don't you have that amazing idea and make that, I don't know, crazy connection when you're listening to a song or reading a book or playing video games? I don't know, drinking in a party with your friends. All of these is political and cultural spaces. Right. But there's, you know, when there's real people dying in real places, when there's 
and I'm, you're much closer to this than I am. You know, there's people coming out of the rainforest now saying, we can't do this anymore. It's getting too polluted. You know, there, there are people coming out we haven't seen in, yeah. you know, hundreds of thousands of years saying, we can't take this anymore. Yeah. But, you know, so if 20-somethings are writing music about that, yeah. is that is that what we do? Is that our, our contribution? How do we actually stop what's happening to real people in real places. But that's also what we do. I will give you an example. For example, right. I, I'm a black person, right? I've been uh, enslaved as a people, not as myself, but I've been enslaved, I've been robbed, I've been beaten, I've been called names, and I'm still one of the peoples that create the most culture ever. Whenever you have these doubts, can't you like stop and look to the side and see that the people that are more criminalized are the ones that are creating culture? If the only way of fighting socially would be, I don't know, in a protest, in a march, and I, I, just think about, I don't know, let me give you a more uh, recent uh, example. Black Lives Matter protests. Whenever you go, there's a chant, there's music, there's walking, there's rhythm. It's not like walking through the streets, doing like a robot, having no way. Do you know? Culture is made by people that are are suffering the most. These are the people that are making the best parties. It's true. It's what, you know, and there's a... uh, uh, uh... There's a tradition and recognize it. Like uh, Federico Garcia Lorca used to write that it was the it was the Hitanos, you know, the the gypsies and the yeah. and the folk, the poor people, the peasants yeah. who were creating the culture, and yeah. that the court, what was happening in the court, was it, at best an imitation of what those people were doing a hundred years before. Yeah. <laughs> so I hear you there, and I'm sure if we went to the Syrian refugee camps, you know, even in there, we would see cultural expression emerging. There's people writing plays and music. And not only as an escape, you know, I'm not doing this because I wanted to escape my word and etc., which is a a very good reason by itself, like, but because humans express themselves by culture. And I'm not here doing like uh, defense that you have to suffer in order to make good music. (laughs) But I am saying that if we heard and, and listen and watch what actual people that are going to these actual problems are doing in order to survive, then you're going to find the answer to this type of questions. Right. I mean, I guess the critique of that comes when you see, um, like in the United States, this uh, social media celebrity, Kendall Jenner. Yes. I mean, you know, she makes this commercial for Pepsi oh, that I they were imitating, yeah. imitating Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And they were able, in some ways, they successfully, they weren't trying to satirize it, but yeah. they did, in a way, accidentally satirize the American hip, oh, let's go march with Black Lives Matter because that's cool. And we get to be in the street with cool looking people. But that's what white people do, right? That's, 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 <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sorry, but this is how probably was made up by a room, fill it with white men reaching for a white woman to make in a white team. If you are from the rap community, rap community, hip hop community, you know when someone is true, like you know you, you know where you come from, because right. it, it it exhales out of you. Like there's no way you can fake 
being a rapper, right? Same way you can't fake being a protester. You can't fake uh, being for Black Lives Matter, even though a lot of white people are actually trying to do it right now. When they come from this place of appropriation, it's not actually bad when a white person comes from ignorance. Like, I don't know this, and I'm trying to understand this, and I want to be a better person. This is an okay thing, right? I mean, but this is one thing. The other thing would be someone that's trying to gain money and appropriate culture over that, which is what Pepsi tried to do. They tried to sell the hype, you know? They know that this is what's making money right now. This is what's trendy in the industry. This is what's trendy in society. So we are trying to mimic, mimic cry, like, like they're trying to imitate it uh, on, on that. And that's not art. Art is organic. Culture is organic. You do it because you live it. There is a word where uh, Pepsi could make a, a commercial about Black Lives Matter. It could work if they're written yeah. by Black people, if they're exactly. acting by Black people, if they are actually made on a protest. It would. It, it, there's there's a there's a uh, a parallel universe where that could work, but it didn't because it was made by white people for white people with white people thinking about it right or even if it was even if it was made by you know people with brown skin yeah um, it was still any made, racialized you know, people would understand what's happening yeah yeah it's uh it's it was the the intention was they were trying and at poor things they were trying to say oh we like what's happening there we <laughs> like black lives matter but they just didn't know how to, um, to do they, it? How to participate? Poor yeah, things. Yeah. Poor babies. Um, <laughs> oh, baby. <laughs> that's um, that's very much it. Yeah. So the interesting thing when I look at, at at media ninja work and so much of the the video that's happening, the the more the more activist video and the coverage of protests and the voices that we can't hear on traditional media. If I look at it last year or the year before, it looks like another part of the world. When I look at it now, it looks like America. Do you know? <laughs> it feels, you know what I mean? It's like we have these things. We have the tear gas in the streets, too. It doesn't look foreign. It doesn't look alien at all. There's a lot of reasons for that. First of all, we've been uh, going through, uh, through the same problem. We are all going through a pandemic space, right? Like the pandemic is hitting all of us. So we are reaching for each other in a different way. And the internet and all, all the social activists on the internet and all the, how we call it, the hacktivism, it's working in a different way, right? So this is connecting us right now. The other shade is that the U.S. and South America is going through uh, the same racial struggle, right? You guys had George Floyd and we here had uh, at least three kids who was being shot by the police in, the, in, in, in a week ago, like a week before George Floyd. I think now people in the in, in the united states and people in europe like the north of the world are realizing that they are not enough as a culture as a as a society as people you know like they have to reach out for different cultures or different ideas or different solutions for their problems but i would say that uh we as word we as a planet uh, we are more interested in each other sometimes i feel we are more open not to find each other exotic 
but I think we are more connected now and not in a, oh my God, good way. The pandemic has saved the humanity because we are actually connecting a lot of more and blah, blah, blah. I don't think that, but I do think that we are building a, a different way to look at each other uh, because we are all going to a crisis and we have to find new ways to stay alive. Yeah, but there's the bigger crisis. I mean, if, even if COVID weren't here, we'd want to be speaking with you also because of the way that you are helping to, to center voices from the rainforest. Again, it's other to me in America and in New York, but I look at Brazil in a way and the Amazon as the lungs of the planet. You know, without the rainforest, we can't breathe. Um, and it's under a direct threat. You know, and your leadership is no better, well, I don't think anyway, no better than Trump. Yeah, no, I think it's worse, but yeah. He's letting it burn down, you know? So how can culture and media address this issue? What, what, do, you, what do you see as the way that, and even that listeners of this podcast, what, what do they do to try to, you know, keep their, this, this part of our planet alive? Without media, without culture, you guys wouldn't even know about what's happening here in Brazil, like with the burns, right? So if you're not gonna leave your leave your life behind and take a plane and come to Brazil and like fight with indigenous peoples, you have to rely on information going online or on the newspaper or the radio, whatever you consume your information. You have to rely on these people in order to do it. And you have to go for people that are actually going through and leaving this or at least in connection with people that are doing this, right? You, you might have access to this information on, on your mainstream media on the U.S., but you're going to see it through their eyes. You're going to see it through capitalism eyes. You're going to see it through the internationalism eyes. But what I have to say is that we understand that communication itself won't save it. We'll make you aware of it but won't save it per se. So what we do is that, first of all, Medianesia uh, is very, very close to a PB. The Brazilian, uh, Brazilian Indigenous People, Brazilian Indigenous People Articulation. So this is pretty much the biggest movement here in Brazil that organizes, that are organized by Indigenous peoples. And this is very important for us because we have to connect. In order to tell the story, you have to leave it, right? At least on, on our, our, our idea of telling story. So we are not Indigenous people, but how can we tell Indigenous people's story in order to actually make it real? So in order to do it, we actually met them and, and we became like best friends. Like I'm not even saying in a political way, like we go and have massive parties together. <laughs> like because right. actually, you go to the, do you go to where they live? Like you, yeah. you walk into the jungle? Yeah. But hey, come on. Like this, everyone could do. Like if you, if you could, if you, if you like put yourself into it, you can like go into a, a um, uh, you can go to an uh, indigenous land and you can talk to their leadership and they will gladly show you around. You can stay for a day or two. This is not like a huge thing. Going and living with them is actually easier than what people think. But of course, like, I mean, of course, if you have like a very seedy um, state of mind, you will find it boring or not engaged enough to do it. But 
this is not the 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 hard part but yes we built our uh, uh, in order to understand what we are talking about we did it everything like we moved them we live live with them for more than a month but i don't like to speak about it because it sounds like anthropologic like i'm not the outsider that goes there and learn how they do it how they <laughs> it, how do they procreate right. how they cook. this is like this is pretty much how white people have been telling stories forever, right? Right. It's like it's like studying studying animals or yeah, something. Yeah, like like you watch from far and then you note it down and make a movie about it and and cast white people dressing like indigenous one to tell this story. Do you know that this is not this yeah. is not real? This is not you. There's no way you're gonna tell a story that will make people connect with them by doing that. So we do we go there and we live with them and we befriend them and we learn why this food is made that way or why this river is important or who is this dividing entity or who is their leader or why women do this and men do that. We learn all of that because we want to tell this story. But at the right. end of the day, we are not them. And so what we decided to do, we decided to create another thing called Media India. And this is what we call our our kid. <laughs> like we have a relationship and then from this relationship, a kid was born and we are called Media India. But it's pretty much our uh, technology. Like we, we not teach them because let's face original people. That's how we call it in Brazil. The originals, which is quilombolas and, and indigenous. I mean, that's how we call it everywhere. <laughs> but um, when when you go them there and, and try to teach, I'm going to put this in a lot of commas, but teach them how to communicate. They just look at you and say, yeah, we do something pretty much like that, but not on our phones. We do it with our voices because the oral culture, it's important and etc. So we don't teach them exactly because... There know a lot already, but we share our, our our communication technology with them, and they empower themselves by it, and they recreate another technology. Like, do you know how powerful it is? Like, here we are making a podcast, but can you imagine doing it by someone being in the Amazon, another being on the desert, and desert on another being on a swamp? Do you know how that that would be like? Three different internet connections, but more than that, all the knowledge that would go through that. So all we do right now is like give them our platform whenever they think that we can nationalize a story more that they can do. Uh, mostly because, you know, people don't actually like to listen to indigenous people. They think the indigenous people are either uncultured or, uh, I don't know, sometimes they think they're, they're not... Um, well, people treat them as not actually as people, right? They're like they're underclass citizens, so not even citizens in most part. So what we do sometimes, most of times, is trying to give them a bigger platform in order to to make these histor- stories go wild, uh, go worldwide. Uh, media Ninja now has seven million followers. We are the biggest uh, independent media on social media of the this the the continent. So we have a lot of people listening to us, hearing us. We have people watching our videos. We have a lot of people that look look on what we are verbalizing. So whenever we put something indigenous, we are actually just trying to make space for people to hear their story too. From your perception, what what do you feel that indigenous people are asking for from 
from us to just stop or <laughs> it's, it's the minimum like dude yeah. just, just stop out of the world like seriously yeah. you don't want to have a house anymore is that pretty much it you know what indigenous are talking it's about justice about equal taking care of the place that we live on like how come we are not worried about the amazon how come we are not worried wor worried about climate change climate emergency how How come we are not realizing that burns are killing more than 40, 40,000 kilometers in Brazil? Like, how come, you know, like how, how come this information is not mainstream? How come we are not uh, realizing that during uh, this pandemic, during the COVID-19, uh, indigenous people are the ones that are dying the most when they're when they get in contact with the virus? How come we are not? realizing that deforestation rose 60% more during the pandemic, 64%. Like, do you guys realize that in May, the deforestation in Brazil took down uh, the size, like a, a bigger area than New York in forest in Brazil, like in our country? Like, and this number on May only is bigger than what we deforested in the last five years. We did in a month more than five years. It's, 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 it's insane. And indigenous people are just staring at us and asking, are you insane? Why are you killing this country? Why are you killing this planet? Don't you guys like breathing? Like, that's pretty much it, you know? But the thing is, but you're talking now to, you know, 40,000 people listening to this podcast yes. who all care, yes. who all want to be on the side of, of, of the planet and yes. the people and don't really know how, you know, yeah. they buy special coffee instead of commercial coffee or yeah. they donate money to something or yeah. they don't have a car, you know, or they try to, you know, live in a smaller carbon footprint. Yeah. But it feels much more urgent than yeah. these simple consumer lifestyle choices. Yeah, totally. Why this feeling of urgency, of guilt, goes away whenever whenever you guys post hashtag deforestation on Twitter or or you know take a picture on on a, on a indigenous land or why I, I mean why even do it if you're not engaged enough? And if you're not engaged, why you're not engaged? Because if you ask that question to Black people, I can answer it. We don't engage as much on environmental causes because we are fighting for food, housing, education, and, and health. We don't have enough mental space in order to care for our environment. And I'm even saying it about Black people in ultra-urban spaces because there's a lot of black people that live for the environment actually our religion is connected to, to the environment if you if you look at the black african religions they all make the nature a goddess like take care of the nature connect with the nature go there and save the space make your own food, connect with the animals, connect with the river, connect all of this, just like indigenous people. Like this is part of being black and being indigenous, caring for the earth. Why doesn't other 
are they racist? Well, my argument as to why they're not doing it yeah. is they're living in a culture and yeah. a media yeah. that is triggering their most most base fight or flight survival mechanisms. So even though they're living in a privileged fashion, we're walking around with the psyche of somebody who's about to die. And that's been the plan. That's where billions or perhaps trillions of dollars are going into attacking the brainstem yeah. of the white American to get them in a fearful state so that they will do either they will try to purchase more items than they need in order to fill the empty spot or so that they'll vote for uh, fascists. And that's why we created Media Ninja. That's why we have Media, In Media Ninja, because we believe that telling stories, it's powerful. For example, I have the same struggle with my people, not the same, but a, a, a similar one. How can I go to a hood, like Islam, like a periferia, like a favela, and tell them that taking care of the environment and being together with indigenous peoples are, so, are as important as having good jobs? as having houses, as having a plate of food in front of you at the end of the day? How can I engage those, those people who are actually living on the line that environment is important? And how we do it by telling them stories that look like them. Whenever I tell Black people that we have been enslaved, that we have been killed, that we have been forced into somewhere that we don't belong as my country right now. Like, I do belong because I occupy this place. But how, but whenever I tell them that indigenous people went the same thing, and all they are trying to do is save the planet, and not because they are, like, activists, but because this is part of their lifestyle. Whenever I explain to them that they are fighting for their lives the same way that we are fighting for our lives, we connect. Do you get into trouble the way, you know, uh, say Alicia Garza or somebody here in America who's, you know, speaking truth to power, awakening people, providing role models? I mean, they're also targets. Yeah. You know, you're, you're in, a, in a country where it, it feels like the, your, your dictator is even using more guys with black cars and throwing people in them without any reasons than, than ours did. Are you harassed? Are you afraid? We are definitely harassed, harassed and we are not afraid. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying that we are not human. I mean, you have to be right. afraid in order to move on. Like, if you're not afraid, you are doing something wrong right i mean if you are if you are comfortable with the situation you are just joining status quo and joining status quo is not changing it right so being afraid it's part of the process i think we should embrace being afraid you either watch or you put yourself on the line to die this goes if you are a indigenous person this goes if you are a black person this goes if you are a lgbt person if you're Assume a fight here in Brazil, you have a chance of being killed. And you have to, to, to rely on your peers. You have to rely on culture. You have to rely on how happy you are 
by like, being part of this. Fighting doesn't make us feel good. Like, not in the way, like, you know, like how people say sometimes that, no, I, I fight for this because I feel better after doing it. And I totally get it because you make feel part of something that's that's important. But for indigenous people, for me as a black person, for media ninja as organic to this space, this is our life. This is not. This is not like something we do because it's something extra. No, it can't just be something that a person does. Yeah, it has to be something that a person is. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> That's who you are. Yeah, exactly. And it's not. You don't have to be born black, indigenous, brown to woman, LGBT in order to feel it. As long as you care, as long as you feel like you belong to this this fight, it's gonna it's gonna be natural. I promise you that if you care, you won't be Kendall Jenner in a Pepsi commercial. No, it becomes you're right. It's the natural outgrowth of of human compassion is you become part of it. I've spoken to two or three, you know, real indigenous people since starting this investigation. I guess this interrogation and. All of them, all three of them anyway, they're not worried about the collapse of the planet or the end of civilization. The last one, I just had a, a Tyson Tunka Porte on the, on the show, and he said, look, we indigenous people have seen many civilizations come and go, and we'll be, <laughs> we'll be fine, you know, we'll be fine with or without you. Is that the sense that you get? I mean, it doesn't feel realistic to me. It feels like Western civilization can destroy the world that they live in too. What what's your feeling when you engage with them? Are they worried about uh, about the fate of the planet and life itself? Whenever I'm talking to them, they are so cool and collected and like, oh, it's good, man. I'm gonna fight this, and my peers are dying, and I'm sad. As but at the end, I will either have my land or they're going to learn a lesson. We are so connected with motherland that we are, we know that we are heading to a place that things are going to be uh, either different or it's going to be okay. We black people and indigenous people, we are, use it to crisis. We are, use it to pandemics. We are, use it to falling apart. And we use it to it because we have been put in that situation. Indigenous people are fighting since Portugal came through. Black people are fighting since Europe find them. <laughs> and my type of black people has been fighting since we were took out of our motherland, put on a, on a ship, is bought, sold to different people, enslaved and then force it into living to a country that we didn't spoke the language, we didn't eat what they eat, we didn't wore what they wore, and then we, at some point, got used to it, and this, and we now live in this country among them. So we are used to fight and pain. The thing is, white people are also going through part of it right now. And I think the pandemics woke up some people. 
to the point that they are now realizing that they are also going to a crisis. And then I just look at them and say, mm, welcome to the game. This has been me <laughs> for the last generations. Get yeah. on board. I mean, that's pretty. And I think that's what it came from, you know, wisdom. Yeah, it's Western colonialism has gotten so hungry, so rapacious that it's finally eating the Westerners too. Yeah. You know, we're applying colonialization on ourselves and yeah. we're going, oh man, this really sucks, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was just about to say about the difference between us and, and us Black people out of Africa and indigenous is that they are on their land. But whenever I look to Sonia or Celia or any other indigenous people, they're cool because they belong. Like, this is my land. I'm home. You yeah. guys have That's fascinating. no idea yeah. how peaceful it is to be at your home. I spent some time in um, South Africa. This was in the, in the early 90s before Mandela was elected or anything. And I went to the um, townships, and uh, you know, which are, are really, really poor. I mean, the, the, you know, people living in, in little shacks, you know, with tin and cardboard. And I would speak to them and, you know, they were always so welcoming and bring me food that they don't even have. And I would ask them about America. I was supposed to be writing a piece about the influence of American culture on South Africa as the country opened up. And I asked them, I said, oh, you know, when you look at uh, American rap videos, you know, do you, what do you think, you know, about all the stuff they have and the gold chains and everything? And the people, everyone who I spoke to about it from the townships, the poorest of the poor would say to me, oh, when we think about them, we feel sorry for them because they're dispossessed. They've been taken from their homeland. You know, and I was like, oh, wow. You know, yeah. just this, just being connected to where you live, even in the, in the depths of, of poverty, yeah. at least they're standing on the land that that they feel is their home. Yeah. You know? Whenever I go to, to any African country, I, I'm always like amazed by the fact that they are not worried about racism as much as I am because they don't have to share their lands with white people 24 seven, you know, like right now here in Brazil, like even though when they do, they know they have the upper hand, even yeah. when they are being robbed, slaves and whatever, blah, 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 they have the upper hand because they belong. White mm. people are the foreigners, you know? Right. So this is right. very important for me to say, actually. Well, here in Brazil, we say like branquitude, which would be translate to white people or whiteness, but it's pretty much a concept of a structure. Like I'm not talking right. about the people themselves, but about the structure of financial uh, uh the laws, the way the education, health works, like all this idea how to maintain power. And, and yes, yeah. that's very much attached to to being white and being rich and being old and being cis and being mm. hetero. <laughs> so all these yeah. powerful concepts, but it's a concept not actually going against you guys. I'm sorry if you feel attacked. Right. And it's because it's not, <laughs> it's not, even if they're acting this way, it's not their deepest humanity yeah. that they're acting from. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's the a structure. And, and totally. Yeah. Exactly. That's what they mm -hmm. make us to believe. Those, they want us to be like that. <laughs> don't be like that. It's just that. No, don't be like them. Don't be like them. Oh my gosh. Okay. So Jet. Thank you so much for, for what you do, everything you do. You know, and it is true that to see protests where people are with 
feathers and tambourines and smiles is so inspiring. It raises your blood level, not just from the anger of what they're protesting against, but from the joy of, of seeing masses of humanity um, yeah. celebrating their collective power. Yeah. Celebrate more people. <laughs> You've been on Team Human. Our guest today was Media Ninja co-founder and editor Dria J. Aguiar. You can find out more about Media Ninja at medianinja.org. That's media in Portuguese, which is M-I-D-I-A.org. You can find out more about Dria J and all our guests at teamhuman.fm, where you can also become a supporting member of the team and get access to our ever-growing stash of bonus content and interviews from the vault. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Peeps.